Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. According to McCrindle Research, the top five baby names for boys in 2023 are as follows. Oliver, Noah, Leo, William, and Henry. Anybody by those names? No? No one. Okay. Uh, Oliver apparently has occupied the top spot for the 10th year in a row. Charlotte, Amelia, Isla, Olivia, Mia, the five most popular girls' names. So congratulations, Amelia and Charlotte. You picked the right ones. Uh, Names chosen for newborns uh, reflects Australia's diverse multicultural fabric as well. Of the top 200 boys and girls' names, at least 89 names have non-English origins like Javier, Ethan, Gabriel, Matilda, and Zara. I'm personally very disappointed not to see Eddie and Kevin on that list. Uh, For those who don't know, before I was called Mark, uh, Eddie and Kevin were the names I assigned to myself. I don't know why. Uh, at the time uh, when I was very young and it wasn't that long ago, I thought they were cool names, but uh, yeah, they were horrible, aren't they? Eddie, Kevin. But what's in a name? More than we think. Names are significant to God. On several occasions, God changed people's names to reflect his purpose for them. Names are also something you have for the rest of your life. So this is one of the reasons why choosing a baby name can be one of the most uh, distressing thing that a parent can uh, face and can um, make in choosing the name. As a Bible teacher said, while it's true that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, would roses be as popular if they were called corpse flower or lungwort, two actual names for real flowers? Would baby girls, you know, be as cute if they were named Appaloosa, Blake Keeley, Elizabeth, Nevia, which is uh, heaven spelled backwards, and Hellzell. Um, these are actual names, by the way. How about babies' boys' names uh, like Adolf or Ebola, Ajax, Lucifer? Or diesel. This is my son, diesel, and that's petrol. <laughs> well, this morning, as we continue with part four of our sermon series, A Child is Born, the Miraculous Birth of the Bible, we're going to talk about the miraculous birth of a person in John 1 6. Daryl has already mentioned his name. This is how the Apostle John introduced him. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and this is John the Baptist, and we will see later that it's a name chosen by the angel Gabriel. And by the way, John, the name John is not even in the top 100 boys' names for 2023, just in case you're wondering. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins on their mother's side, Elizabeth and Mary. He turned out to be the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, chosen by God to be the herald of the coming Messiah and King, King Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. His ministry caused such a stir that a delegation of priests 
was sent by the top spiritual leaders in Jerusalem to make official inquiries about him. The reason for this official probing was because after the completion of the Old Testament, God had been silent for 400 years since he spoke through the last prophet, the prophet Malachi. And then one day, out of the blue, John emerges from the wilderness, clothed in camel's hair, who lives on a diet of locusts and, 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 honey, and wild honey, fearlessly calling people to repent and to get their lives right with God. Droves of people came to listen to him from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. And after the people confessed their sins, he would baptize them in the river Jordan. And this is what Jesus had to say about John and his ministry in Matthew 11, 11, part A. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there's not arisen, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So we're now going to go into the events of his miraculous birth, which is found, by the way, only in Luke's gospel. In the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and John, John the Baptist is already an adult, functioning as a prophet when he's introduced. As was with the case with Jesus, Luke meticulously records the birth of John the Baptist in chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, verses 5 to 24. We're just going to read that now. It's up on your screen. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest, before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fe fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept silent. She kept herself hidden, saying, Thus says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach or my disgrace among people. Zechariah was a priest who served in a temple for one, two-week periods annually. Elizabeth also came uh, from a priestly family. Such a union, while common in those days, was regarded as a sign of special privilege. They were a godly couple, righteous before God, an expression describing a moral righteousness that conforms to God's standards. They were grounded in the messianic promises of the scriptures, but Elizabeth was barren, and they were too old to be able to start a family. In Jewish theology, barrenness was a sign of God's displeasure. Not only that, their economic wealth and personal standing in the community depended on having a child. That is why women back then who had children were seen as blessed and celebrities, but women who couldn't have children were considered worthless, a disgrace in their own eyes and in the societies that they lived in. So can you imagine how they must have felt? Why are you punishing us, Lord? What have we done to displease you? To be cursed in this manner, to be disgraced like this. Are you punishing us, Lord? Have we done something to displease you? And of course, the answer to these questions is obviously no. But nonetheless, that was an accepted point of view. And this is the context of Elizabeth's reflection five months into her pregnancy when she said in Luke 1.25, the Lord has done this for me. That is causing her to be pregnant. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. But one thing needs to be pointed out. Despite the pain, the agony, the grief, the suffering of not being able to start a family, they had not become bitter at God. Instead, they kept going. Instead, they lived exemplary lives, serving God faithfully into their old age. But one day, the angel Gabriel unexpectedly announces to Zechariah that his past prayers for a child have been heard. In a short while, they will have a child, and he will be called John which means Yahweh has been gracious. What a beautiful meaning to a name. Yahweh has been gracious. God's display of grace is not just towards Zechariah and Elizabeth, but to the whole world, because it is through the ministry of John that the hearts of, of, of people are being prepared to encounter Jesus, the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, to be put right with God, with their neighbors and within themselves. In other words, the arrival of John means God's promise of salvation through Jesus is near. Six months later, 
The angel Gabriel visits Mary to give her the message that she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus. He lets her in on a secret that Elizabeth, her barren cousin, is five months pregnant. His reason for doing this is to encourage Mary that nothing is impossible with God. In response, Mary puts her trust in God and submits to his will, saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She falls pregnant. And not long after she falls pregnant, she visits Elizabeth. And at the sound of Mary's greeting, John in Elizabeth's womb, Elizabeth's womb leaps in joy. He can't wait to commence his ministry as the forerunner of the the Messiah, even in the mother's womb. Meanwhile, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, further signaling the significance of not only the occasion itself, but God's salvation plan that is unfolding. Clearly, John the Baptist was a pivotal figure in God's salvation history. And that is why Gabriel pronounced that he, John the Baptist, will be great before the Lord, something Jesus himself affirmed. It wouldn't be, though, just because of his mission, but also his character, as we will see shortly. Gabriel tells Elizabeth that John the Baptist is to abstain from drinking wine. In other words, he will live a disciplined life. In the Old Testament, the the restriction from wine existed for priests when they were performing their duties at the temple. And the strongest parallel to the wording about John not drinking wine is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, an allusion to the prophet Samuel when he was presented to Israel as Israel's first prophet. By this parallel, John's role, prophetic role, is stress. And this is underscored by the statement that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit because of his all-important mission of pointing people to Jesus. His ministry, in effect, marks the conclusion of the law and the prophets, but one that heralds the breaking in of the kingdom of God and the coming work of the Holy Spirit. So in this sense, John was truly a transitional figure, forming the link between the Old and the New Testaments. He spans the ages with one foot firmly planted in the Old Testament and the other squarely placed in the New Testament. What does it all mean for us here in the 21st century? Many of you would remember my sermon on the miraculous birth of Isaac where I talked about my friend and ex-colleague, Joe. We used to serve together in a mission agency called Youth with a Mission in Singapore from 1998 uh, until 2001. Sadly, he passed away in a car accident just a month ago on his way to catch his flight back to Singapore in Istanbul. He was a visionary, a very capable leader, an inspiring leader, an inspirational leader, and also a capable administrator, which is a very rare combination. A lot of visionaries are not good administrators, but he could do both very well. 
He was blessed with a wide range of gifts. He could deliver inspiring sermons that would go from 45 minutes to 60 minutes without using notes. His ability to remember stuff, to store information in his head is just incredible. In 2011, during a time of prayer, before commencing in his new role as the National Director for YWAM Singapore, he received a vision from the Lord. In that vision, he saw, he, he, he saw a picture of himself wearing a multicolored coat. And he saw the Lord walking towards him and said, nice coat. Before your new role as the National Director of Youth with Mission, Singapore, I've designed a new coat for you. Do you want it? That was a rhetorical question. You can't say no to God, can you? So he said, yes. The Lord gives him a box. And inside the box was a coat made of rags. He didn't know what to do. And the Lord said to him, put it on. I made this for you. And the Lord continues speaking to him. With the role that you're about to step into, you will be accorded with many titles and positions and accolade by people. But the rags before you represent brokenness and humility. You must wear this as your undergarment and never remove it. Wear brokenness and humility at the core of who you are. In other words, God wanted Joe to know his place and to live his life in such a way where Yahweh gets all of the glory and praise. Joe's ministry going forward will, will be all about Jesus, not him. Well, John the Baptist adopted the same posture of heart. And this is in such contrast to the mindset of so-called celebrity pastors we read about and hear about. John the Baptist understood very clearly that his mission was to exalt Christ, not himself. And there was an incident, if you remember, uh, you remember in, 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 in the uh, Gospel of John, where his disciples, where John the Baptist's disciples became very concerned, very disturbed, and even became resentful about the rising popularity of Jesus. Because people were now going to Jesus and his disciples to be baptized. Unlike his followers, John the Baptist was unperturbed. Even though after he began his ministry in the wilderness where some believed the Messiah would appear, he began to flourish as a charismatic, powerful preacher and spiritual leader in his own right. Everything about his ministry recalled the prophet Elijah, his ruggedness, his message, his living in the wilderness. He drew a crowd everywhere he went. People were dying to hear him speak. As his influence and reputation spread, he began to grow his own band of disciples, two of whom eventually became Jesus' disciples, Andrew and the Apostle John. In fact, his preaching was so convincing, he had such an aura about him, people wondered, people began to speculate if John the Baptist was actually the Messiah. 
to questions about that and to news of Jesus' rising popularity, John the Baptist did not become territorial or insecure, demonstrating not the slightest hint of jealousy. This is what he said to the people who are asking if he was the Messiah in John chapter 3, verses 27 to 30. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how I plainly told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him, to serve him, to be his hands and feet. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at the success of Jesus. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Isn't that a beautiful, remarkable response on the part of John the Baptist? Unfazed, unperturbed, not jealous at all at his cousin's rising popularity. What made John the greatest born of women in the eyes of Jesus wasn't just his unique mission, but his character, his uncompromising courage for the truth was only equal by his profound humility. Nothing filled him with joy as much as seeing Jesus getting lifted up, getting glorified, and getting honored. John the Baptist drew people to himself not so that he could leave a legacy that people will remember him by. John the Baptist saw his role as ministry as just the opening act, the warm-up, the supporting act before the main act, Jesus, the light of the world that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. Our mission is the same as John the Baptist, pointing people to Jesus in word and in deed. The late Sri Lankan pastor and evangelist said this, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. That is our role, to show people where to find food. The late Leslie Newbigin, a theolo British theologian and missionary said, without words without deeds are empty, but deeds without words are dumb. Brothers and sisters, our entire life are to point to the glory of Jesus. And we rejoice doing this even if we suffer ridicule and rejection. The mission of John the Baptist is our mission as well. And how do we apply this? I want to encourage you to spend some time this week reading, meditating, and praying the first half of the prayer Jesus taught us to prayer, commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. A prayer that I am most certain John the Baptist was familiar with, prayed regularly, and most importantly, embodied. In the Lord's Prayer, there are six petitions. The first three are not about us, but about God's glory or his honor. God's kingdom and God's will being done. I want to encourage you this week to begin your prayer 
here with the first three petitions. Not your needs, not your wants, not whatever challenges you're facing. Just start with the three and stop there. They'll go on to your needs and what. Not that they're not important, but I, I think it's, a, I think it's a, more than a good exercise. It's good practice. It's good discipline that we focus on God's glory and honor, his kingdom, and his will being done. Just stop there. Think about that. Pray. A pastor offers this insight. It is almost like Jesus, as he teaches us to pray, invites us to see the much bigger story of what's going on in the world. He's going to get us, he's going to get to us and our problems and our needs. They matter too. But Jesus first invites us to see ourselves as small. Instead of our whole vision being consumed with what's happening right in front of us, a little slice of reality, Jesus wants us to see the much bigger picture and our small role within it and to live in this greater story. And finally, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher and pastor. Before we begin to think of ourselves and our own needs, even before our concern for others, we must start with this great concern about God and his honor and his glory and his kingdom coming and his will being done. That is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray and not start with our needs, with our wants, with our problems. They're important, but begin with God's glory, his kingdom coming and his will being done in and through your life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you alone are worthy of all worship and praise. All that is good in our lives come from you. Therefore, we dedicate all that we are and all that we have to you to live in such a way that you and only you are lifted up, glorified, and honored. This is our life's purpose. This is our ultimate source of fulfillment and satisfaction, which is so contrary to our cultural values and beliefs, which says that self-fulfillment, self-advancement is what life is all about. We must increase at the expense of everyone else and everything else. We reject that. We repent of that. We say, as John the Baptist did, we're here to point people to you, Lord, in word and in deed. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. We desire to be filled with joy at news of you being glorified and worshiped. May our longing to live for your glory and honor and your kingdom and purpose become greater and greater. And may our longing to live for our glory and ourselves become less and less and less. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. 
please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.